This week's podcast proudly brought to you by Kent Cartridge. See, I made the mistake of buying the cheapest shot shells I could find when I first started duck hunting, and I would literally I'd watch feathers fly off of birds as they gave me a middle finger and flew off unscathed. That's when I switched over to Kent, and I was bartending and waiting tables at the time in college, and money was tight, but Kent offered me a great product at a fair price, and I've never looked back. Of course, now we have uh, Fast Steel 2.0. They just released Fast Steel Plus for this upcoming season, and with Dove season on the horizon, we've got Steel Dove, and then Teal Steel for early teal season. Whatever your shotgunning needs are for this fall, Kent has you covered. You can find all of their products at Kent Cartridge. This week's show brought to you by Ducks Unlimited, an organization that I've been plugged into for, gosh, over 15 years now. From the Alaskan wilderness to the Atlantic Flyway, across America's Great Plains, and down the Mississippi Delta, Ducks Unlimited has been leading the way in wetlands conservation since 1937. The DU family has ensured the protection of over 16 million acres of waterfowl habitat. Think about that. So, come join us. You too can carry on DU's conservation legacy. Visit ducks.org to find your local event and join our volunteer team, Ducks Unlimited, the world's leader in wetlands conservation. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Cable Smith welcoming everybody into episode 703 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg. Thank you for being here today. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And of course, uh, that means your butt better have been in the deer blind or duck blind or uh, some other outdoor activity. It's not, it's not all football and stuffing your face, although those don't suck by any means. Uh, but man, we had a great Thanksgiving. Um, Henry, myself and Henry's buddy Judd went out to the deer lease and the hunting was very slow. We only saw one deer and three sits. I mean, it was abysmal. The full moon just had everything shut down. Of course, as soon as we left on Sunday, uh, you know, Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, all day, Monday, daytime movement and the rut has picked back up. So I don't know. It was uh, it was a weird weekend, but uh, we did decide to duck hunt Sunday morning, and the boys helped me build a, a proper duck blind with hog panels and T posts, and we spent like three hours on that project, which they thoroughly enjoyed. Um, so yeah, we still had a good time. It was pretty chilly, which is why I was so surprised that the deer weren't moving during the day uh, as temperatures got down into the you know I think it was upper twenties at night. But that's the way hunting goes sometimes. Uh, hopefully you had better luck than we did. Uh, still made some great memories, and we always do the classic uh, leftover Thanksgiving feast in the camper or last year in the tent. Uh, but those traditions are, are ones that Henry and I certainly enjoyed, and he was he was pumped to have his buddy there. That was the first time he's brought a friend with him to deer camp, so we introduced uh, another youngster into both deer hunting and duck hunting, so... That's awesome. Uh, Kids will never remember their best day of playing Xbox, I tell you what. But uh, those memories that were made this past weekend, yeah, they'll always have those to look back on fondly. 
long after I'm six feet deep for sure. Um, what are we doing today? Let me tell you. You know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of that Black Rifle coffee out of Granddaddy's beat-up old Stanley Thermos because we're ready to rock and roll. And joining us for the duration of today's presentation is Texas Parks and Wildlife's White-Tailed Deer Program leader, Alan Kane, a longtime friend of the program. Um, you know, I don't agree with everything Texas Parks and Wildlife does. That's very clear, but I do support them and have uh, over the years. I mean, there's no denying that. Um, I think that they do a good job uh, across the board, but when it comes to certain things, yeah, I, I will take them to task. And the way that CWD has been handled lately, um, I, it's confusing to me. Why are we spending so much money on this disease when EHD, um, blue tongue, not so much anthrax because the conditions have to be absolutely perfect for that to occur, but certainly those other diseases kill as many, probably more, white-tailed deer than CWD. So why is CWD the Grim Reaper? I don't know. Uh, why, are, why is Texas Parks and Wildlife sending out flyers to registered hunters to their houses uh, for, you know, a dollar, twenty-five dollar fifty a pop on you know, CWD awareness? I don't I don't know. Um, but as far as the regulations go, Alan, that's more of you know, that's his area of expertise. That's his department. So that's why I want to have him on today because we had a couple deer breeders on. I think that was late August, early September. They were not happy with Texas Parks and Wildlife. So I figured yeah, we needed to get the other side of the story. And it's uh, it's pertinent, too, because Texas Parks and Wildlife just had some commission meetings uh, where this stuff was discussed. And Alan was just there. It's been maybe a month ago now. But um, we are going to dive into any new regulations because there was a statewide proposal that could affect you and I, the, the average low fence white-tailed deer hunter. Um, when we shoot a deer on our lease, this, this could affect us. So we'll see if that passed or if that was tabled and uh, basically just get an overview of Texas Parks and Wildlife's CWD plan going forward. So it's going to be all CWD. It's such a hot button issue. It's like covid for white-tailed deer. Uh, but, and I mean that literally too, because COVID turned out not to be the grim reaper for humanity. Is it real? Yes. Does it kill people? Does CWD kill deer? Sure. Uh, but is it, is, is it the end all be all? Mm, I don't know. I have my own personal thoughts on that, as you guys know. Uh, but I'm not going to skew this conversation or try to point it one way or the other we're just going to have an open discourse with alan and i'm certainly looking forward to that um let's do a quick giveaway here how about and this is something different we haven't done this one before um but vortex makes the best scope rings on the planet uh for the money you're not going to find a sturdier more reliable scope ring and, and as far as easy mounting i mean geez uh but their pro rifle scope series these things retail for like $130. They are, I think I have a 30 millimeter and a 34 millimeter medium or high height. Those are your options. And you can pick whichever one you want, uh, 30 or 34 or medium or high as far as height goes. Uh, but just email the word Vortex, that's Vortex, to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. 
and you are entered into today's scope ring giveaway. Uh, these are for Picatinny and Weaver mounts, by the way. So you can also check those out at vortexoptics.com uh, if you're in the market for scope rings, which aren't we always, by the way? Despite what my wife says, I don't think the term, I have enough guns, actually exists. Like, if you said that, you're, you're lying. You can never have enough guns, which means you are always in the market for rifle scope rings. Well, let's knock out that break. Up next, we're talking chronic wasting disease with Texas Parks and Wildlife's Alan Kane on the Lone Star Outdoors. Yeah, the show. Wind blows, but I can feel your touch. Gives you through another day. With a long stretch of highway. In the market for a compact track loader, check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at one of our nine North Texas locations. Visit BobcatOfNorthTexas.com or call 469-586-0000 today. Clark, that's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. That it is, Edward. That it is indeed. And I had taken a fine point marker and given him a small tattoo. The word mom and a heart on his shoulder, like a real GI might do. And I remembered that Christmas morning. Mom smiling warm and nice, knowing she got what I wanted and knowing she only paid half price. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented yeah, by Mossberg Firearms. Thanks memories. for being here today, just celebrating the holiday season. Yes, Most it is okay it to play Christmas music now that we've made it through Thanksgiving. Actually, I love Christmas music, but we got to get through one holiday before we can celebrate the next. So uh, let the Christmas tunes roll. I love it. I love the spirit of Christmas and everything that goes along with it. And I really love the fact that you no longer have to set foot in a mall. You can just order everything online, and it shows up at the door. I haven't been in a mall in years, and that makes me very, very happy. <laughs> I don't know. When was the last time you were in the mall? Uh, I don't have any plans of going back anytime soon. My son asked me the other day, what's a mall? Can we go to one? <laughs> Man, we, uh, we've grown up in different times. The mall was the hangout spot when I was a little bit older than him. He's 11. So certainly in junior high, we'd get dropped off at the mall. But yeah, uh, I think that a lot of times technology and progress suck for society. But the mall, yeah, as an adult, don't need it. Um, anyway, we are all set to talk some CWD with Texas Parks and Wildlife's Whitetail Deer Program Leader, Alan Kane. Uh, this segment is brought to you by Big and J, Whitetail Attractants, and my friends over at Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. Uh, you can find them at gr8mounts.com, by the way. Well, let's get right into it. Uh, the topic that I believe has become the most controversial out there uh, when it comes to whitetail deer. Let's talk some chronic wasting disease with Texas Parks and Wildlife's Alan Kane. Alan, welcome back to the show. Yeah, Kane, okay, I'm glad to be back. Absolutely. Glad that you're here. Uh, I've been fortunate. I've taken two bucks so far uh, this fall. Um, but I'll be honest, I haven't seen the just hardcore rutting activity on my place out in Benjamin, which is in Knox County, that I would expect. 
That full moon shut things down, certainly last weekend. Um, but you know what I did see, interestingly enough, was an, an Audad showed up. Uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago. I got one picture of him. And, of course, the next day my butt was in that stand at that exact time. And he ghosted me. And I've never gotten another picture of him since then. But uh, I do. I love that about Texas. You, you, you never know what kind of uh, interesting exotic might just pop out on your low fence place. Did, uh, so do y'all see many odd ad up there? That's the first one I've ever seen. This is my second year on the place. Um, one of the guys that's on the lease shot one like four years ago, but they haven't seen them since. And it was a decent Ram. I'd say, you know, maybe 28 inches, but with huge, just flowing chaps. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know when all that rut, but, uh, Sure, he was looking for somebody, something, yeah. some love somewhere. It's still excitement to th- think that there might be something that decent. That's a decent size of 20, 28 yeah. inch coming through that country. Yeah, yeah. So, how has deer season been so far? As far as uh, what you're seeing throughout much of the state? Yeah, I think it was just you know harvest wise, probably just average. Um, although we had just in South Texas here, talked to some. Um, folks that it killed some good deer in like in Carnes County, a couple of 160s low fence, you know, down by the river, San Antonio River that runs through um, mm. some of the portion of the county there. So there's some good deer, and I land on our work with, um, he killed some great deer, um, or his hunters did, I think a 223 and a couple in the 160s and the 170s. So um, nice bucks hitting the ground, but Everybody um, commented. I think the fog was almost universal across the state. It seemed like because down it? here it's foggy on Saturday and Sunday mornings, and uh-huh. so people were like I just didn't see much. And then I guess uh, in the afternoons they were having a little bit better luck. So yeah, that fog was pretty bad uh, opening weekend. I do remember that. Um, uh, one of my buddy's daughters, though, down around Encinal, she smoked a oh god, it was like a one seventy two or something like that, ten point. The biggest deer they've ever killed on their place. Uh, that was some, that was pretty cool uh, for for their family anyway. It shows that the management plan is is working. So she was excited, I, I'm sure. Oh my gosh, yeah. I think she's 14, and he was like, "Okay, well, you just shot the biggest deer we've ever killed on the ranch. So uh, now you get to guide for your three younger sisters. Uh, your, your trophy time is uh, on the shelf until everyone takes a nice buck, which I don't think she appreciated." Thanks a lot. What I really wanted to talk about today is is CWD. And um, I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you as, as head of our, uh, your, your whitetail program leader. So in your opinion, is CWD worse than uh, EHD or blue tongue? Um, I know anthrax is more of a location and all the conditions have to be right for that. So it's probably not as relevant. Um, and, and that one's really confined to specific regional areas. But certainly EHD and blue tongue kill a lot of deer. And so I just wanted to, you know, get your take on is one worse than the other? Yeah, they both, they're both, um, obviously you can have impacts on uh, white-tailed deer populations. The, the EHD and the blue tongue, those are typically short-term. I mean, they're happening um each year, you know, depending on the conditions, because uh, they're the blue tongue and EHD, they're, uh, the virus is carried by a little midge, just like a little gnat, no seeing um, uh-huh. insect. And so uh, 
and we don't see a lot of EHD or um, blue tongue in Texas like you do in the southeast or the Midwest or somewhere, uh, someplace in the northeast um, where the conditions tend to be more favorable for those um, that virus to spread and, and those midges to, to hatch. Um, where I do see impacts here in Texas, uh, especially in um, maybe breeder facilities where they have some northern genetic influence, those deer have less resistance to the blue tongue or EHD strains that we, we have here in the state. Our Texas deer have uh, been exposed to it, I guess, over the years and have essentially a titer built up to it. And so um, built up to, the, to that disease, so they don't have quite the impacts. But obviously, you know, when we have times when you have some you know, wet conditions and then it dries up and you got these little mud poles around and that's where those little midges, you know, they kind of concentrate. And so you see, especially in the Southeast, you'll see, you know, periods where it picks up um, when the, you have some rain, wet weather dries out, the midge population explodes and then it gets in the deer. And when that happens, you can, especially when you have areas of the, the nation where deer are, um, susceptible to those particular strains EHD, you can have some pretty severe uh, death loss, you know, acute. It just happens within a week or two period, and you may see deer in a in, you know, in a valley or a particular area of the you know, county, wherever it is, when you see this little outbreak, and then it's over with and done. Midges go away with the weather, and then the population can rebound if you don't have um, another outbreak in the subsequent years. The problem with CBD is that it's it's not a virus, not a bacteria. Obviously, it's just a little protein. Um, it's uh, misfolding and causes a transmission. It's in the family of diseases called transmissible spongiform encephalopathy. Problem with it, there's no cure um, mm-hmm. for that disease. And so once it gets in a, a deer population, um, you know, it's not like you can go give them vaccine or they're just going to recover quickly from that um, long term. Uh, and the other thing is the uh, like the the midges are what control you know obviously the outbreak of EHD, but the prions if you have a sick deer with CBD and it can run around and, and while it's infected and shed those prions in the environment, and so they can sit out in the soil for many years, you know, scrapes, you know, feeder places where deer concentrate, and mm-hmm. so get another deer that come along may not get nose-nose contact with infected animals, but potentially could pick it up uh, through the soil. And uh, and so once it's out there, that's where the problem is long-term is. You can't get rid of it, and we want to avoid that. Now, there's research um, in some places like uh, Wyoming. I think Dave Edmonds' um, research and uh, the Vivo is another project. They did up there looking at white-tailed mule deer. And their model suggested population declines um, over time. And in fact, if I remember correctly, CBD positive animals had a four and a half times or more uh, higher mortality rate than non-positive animals. Now, um, you know, CBD might not have been the leading cause that killed them, but you know, it, it you start getting holes in your brain, which is what CBD essentially does. Um, you can't think, you can't reason, you know, you just can't function. And mm-hmm. so you're standing there in the highway and a car is barreling down the road um, and you're, you're infected with CBD and you just don't have your faculties about you, you get smacked by that car. But a deer that's normal, you know, 
hopefully they avoid those uh, situations or able to avoid predators more, hunters, those sorts of things. Right. Well, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. I want to come back and, and try to understand. I mean, I know you guys have to be proactive. We don't want to have an outbreak. We haven't had a severe outbreak outbreak in Texas. Most of them have been confined, even though we've had them in, you know, free range cervids and behind high fences. Um, but maybe there are studies from Northern states that warrant, you know, this type of CWD surveillance and, and regulatory, you know, potential changes. Uh, we'll get into that next. That segment was brought to you by stealth cam and the deceptor wireless trail camera. Uh, if you're looking for something that will give you absolutely stunning nighttime images, the no glow technology on uh, the deceptor is the creme de la creme. It is the best thing on the market. You can pick one up uh, at stealthcam.com and data plans are like as cheap as $5 a month. And we'll be right back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Everything's gonna be alright, I know. It's the coldest time of winter. And I shiver when I see the falling snow. Let me tell you about the Armorsight 640 contractor. It is the industry-leading thermal technology in a very user-friendly rifle scope. A 640 Armor Core 12 Micro made in the USA Thermal Core. It's got a four-hour onboard recording, four-hour runtime on a full charge, USB and Wi-Fi streaming, uh, eight user-selectable reticles and six color palettes, and the most user-friendly interface out there because you're operating these things in the dark. So uh, that's very important. You can find the contractor, the 640, or its little brother, the 320, right there at armorsite.com. Looking for a thermal hog hunt near DFW? Then 3 Curl Outfitters has you covered. Offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of Dallas, guide scout daily to put you on the bacon. Using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders, crop fields, and river bottoms, you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees. Visit www.3curl.com. Also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request. Book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940. Hey everybody, this is Brandon Ryder, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. You better think of something, think of something real fast. I ain't stopping you anymore. You're about to say something that you can't take back. So there's nothing I can do but draw the line. Well, Brandon Ryder bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg. Cable Smith here with you. Appreciate you being here today. Happy holidays to you and yours. Uh, this segment of the show is proudly brought to you by Vortex Optics and the Bantam 65 by 32 Youth Binocular. Perfect gift for that kiddo, that young hunter in your life. Uh, you can find the Bantam, and I think it retails for $59. It comes with that uh, VIP transferable lifetime warranty that Vortex is known for. Uh, and you can pick one up at uh, vortexoptics.com or go over to eurooptic.com and use my promo code LONESTAR10 and save 10% on all Vortex Optics. Okay, with that being said, um, Alan Kane is still here with us, our TPWD Whitetail Deer Program Leader, and we're talking chronic wasting disease today. Alan, 
as far as managing CWD in Texas, you guys are very proactive. Some uh, landowners would say a little too authoritarian for their liking, but you obviously have a good reason for doing this. Take us to, I don't know, Wyoming or uh, a Midwestern state like Wisconsin, where, you know, if you look at a CWD heat map, uh, Wisconsin is rife with CWD, uh, depending on the year. But in places like Wisconsin, um, you have really high prevalences in some areas up there where it's a coin flip, whether you're going to kill CV positive here or not. So part of the, the issue is that, um, again, obviously there's no cure for it. You can't get rid of it. The prions, once they're in the soil, that's an issue. But, um, you know, in some areas like Wisconsin, maybe you don't see a population decline or we don't know that uh, what's going to happen for 50, 60 years from now. And that, that's the potential where you could see that change. But in places like Wisconsin or maybe some other places where there's a potential for decline or you're, they've documented some of it, um, the population may be able to recover because of fawn recruitment. So in other words, if you have a pretty high fawn recruitment, you're always having t- turnover um, or a lot of production out there in that population, let's say, um, it can mask the, the effects of CDD at some point. But if you get in a place like South Texas, for example, if you had an average of 30% fawn crop because it's dry down, we have drought, predation, all that stuff. And, um, you know, and you suppress those numbers and then maybe CBD starts to affect the age structure of that deer herd. So the, the does, for example, or just the age structure in general is lowered. Well, lower, younger age classes, you produce less fawns and long term, you could potentially have population level impacts. And I think Cesar Clayburg's done some work modeling with CBD and infection rates versus fawn crops in uh South Texas and in, in their model predicts that you would see a population decline there or uh, or potentially just impacts on that age structure. And if you're trying to grow trophy deer in South Texas or anywhere in the state, that would certainly be a concern there. Um, mm-hmm. But we just, I guess the idea, Cable, is that I don't think anybody, it doesn't matter whether you're a deer reader or low fence, high fence country, it doesn't matter. Nobody wants CBD to be on the landscape and so the the issue is how do we go about minimizing or mitigating the potential spread of the disease from areas where it's known to exist uh-huh. well, unlike those other states wisconsin wyoming we have not had like a wide-scale outbreak in texas yeah so and that's a good thing again right. we don't want it everywhere but of course you know the places where it's in free range, we see it in the Transpecos in the Panhandle. Um, likely came in through New Mexico. Um, there's CBD positive deer there, mule deer and elk in New Mexico, and then uh, up in the Panhandle from southeast Colorado, New Mexico, Kansas, uh, Oklahoma, come through the you know into Texas that way. Um, we have free range positive in Lubbock. Uh, not sure how that got there. That's around. Um, I think Ransom Canyon, which is just east of Lubbock, kind of a rural subdivision area around the lake. Um, also in Del Rio, we have a, had a free range, a couple of free range positive there. We think we know how that got there through uh, uh, a person that was doing taxidermy work and also rehabbing fawns in the same spot. They were actually uh, soaking heads, you know, um, in the backyard from 
obviously be positive hits. You know, they got in zones or out of state, and then they were rehabbing the backyard. And so the fawns had direct contact with that nasty water those heads are sitting in, and so that's potential. And then you've got uh, some in Medina County. But overall, we have about 103, um, uh, roughly 103, 104 free-range positives around the state, majority in the panhandle with Trans-Pecos. We have other um, positives, obviously, in captive breeding facilities. About I don't remember the exact number, 424 roughly or so. And uh, of those, the majority were in five facilities. Um, and most of those have been depopulated. There's still one facility um, in North Texas that hadn't depopulated, has quite a few positives, like 140 positives, roughly. And so, uh, again, that's probably not the best example of what to do if you're, if it's in your pens, you're not managing it somehow, you know, whether it's uh, removing the positives in the pen and exposing or whatever it is, or getting under a herd plan with animal health and us, but that point is just sitting there cooking and so that's the thing we want to avoid well that's a lot of positives in one place and you know nothing despite the incubation period which we will talk about next um nothing can be done to save these deer you guys have forcibly depopulated facilities before i expect at the end of the day that's what will happen here um cwd though unlike ehd uh, my understanding is it can have a much longer incubation time so you could have a deer that's sick for a couple of years before like you said it mental faculties or whatever his body starts to shut down yeah so um that's another thing it's just hard to diagnose cvd um to your point uh, i think some of the research shows that the average time from point of infection till clinical is 15 to 18 months. And then there's been some other studies that show up to 24 to 32 months. I don't remember exactly, but you had kind of these long time periods. So I can have a deer out there, whether it's in the pen or the pasture, looks perfectly healthy, um, but it's infected and it's just carrying that disease. And in fact, really those clinical stages don't happen to the last month or two of the, you know, the disease progression. And so that's part of the challenge. I can't just look at a deer and say, yeah, that one's sick. Um, mm-hmm. If we have a disease, it's just walk around. And during that period where it's infected, again, it can walk around, look perfectly healthy, and it's shedding these prions out there in the environment or with other deers it comes into contact with. So that's obviously the challenge in managing that disease. Well, I, while I don't envy your position as far as having to be the safeguard for Texas for our deer herd. Uh, I do think there's there's some questionable things that TPWD has done from a messaging standpoint. I want to get into those next because, and, and maybe your opinion is different. Maybe most hunters don't know what CWD is. Uh, I, don't, I, I would find that hard to believe, but let's discuss that after the break. That segment brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. Don't forget... Right now, through the end of December, we are offering up that uh, two-man, two-night, two-day, fully guided, uh, all-inclusive duck hunt down at the Pipkin Ranch. Yeah, on the Texas coast. So how do you enter for a chance to hunt with me and my buddy Ryan Warhola, who was nice enough to donate the hunt? All you have to do is join SCI, which you should already be a member, right? They do more to protect your rights than any other group out there. 
as far as uh, hunting and conservation is concerned. And uh, you use that promo code CABLE23, that's CABLE23, when you join or renew your membership over at safariclub.org. And then, boom, you're automatically entered. We will uh, draw the winner on New Year's Day. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. But I have a blue, 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 blue Christmas. Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. It's the sound of silence delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use e-forms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started. Baby, I'm just a bad guy. I don't know why. But you'll curse the day we met. I'll be your downfall till it's last call. I'm not coming home to you. And I'll break everything you love and make you cry. Hello, Casey Donahue bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you as always. Thanks for being here. We've still got Texas Parks and Wildlife's Whitetail Deer Program Leader, Alan Kane, here with us today. And we will continue that uh, CWD discussion momentarily. This segment, though, is brought to you by the Armasite 640 Contractor. Uh, it is the best thermal scope that I have had the pleasure of using, and I've run through a lot of them over the years. Uh, the most user-friendly interface, diverse color palette, internal recording, Bluetooth, all that stuff. And here's the cool thing, uh, through the end of the year, 10% instant savings, that's a 10% rebate right off the bat when you purchase a 640 or its little brother, the 320 contractor. You can find them over at armasite.com. And uh, with that being said, uh, Alan, thanks for sticking around. You know, I wanted to talk about some of the messaging, uh, some might call it propaganda even. Uh, that is being put out there by Texas Parks and Wildlife when it comes to CWD. Uh, so let's dive into that right now. Okay, so I've noticed over the last uh, maybe year that we have pretty focused campaigns. Like I'm seeing CWD awareness billboards. A lot of uh, licensed hunters got mailers from Texas Parks and Wildlife on CWD awareness. And so I was just going to ask like, as far as funding that, I'm assuming those obviously hunter dollars are being used on that front. I would think that most hunters are aware of what are aware of CWD. Like what most deer hunters be like, I know what that is, but obviously we're having a conversation about it. So maybe a lot of them don't know exactly what it does. I don't know what the what the um what the messaging will do that. Like what uh, what can what can the average person, a free range deer hunter do to help stop the spread of CWD? Like what is the billboard or the mailer going to do for them? That's a great question, Cable. And so um, so I'm always surprised at the number of people that may have heard the, the acronym CWD or may have heard of chronic weight disease, but that's about it. They just mm -hmm. know it's disease. I don't want it, you know, but it doesn't affect me. It's not in my backyard. So I don't, it, I think it's just human nature. We don't always look at things until it's affecting us, you know, yeah. Um, but there's enough 
starting to be enough information out there. People are starting to learn about it a little bit. We found just even in our zones, there was a lot of hunters that didn't know about the disease, didn't know what it was, didn't even know about the some of the rules in place, um, you know, having to get your deer tested, park disposal rules. And so um, there was kind of a lack of information out there. And so part of that awareness campaign was just um, with billboards and mailers and videos was to drive people to our website just to get them to, to look at CB webpage, learn a bit information, learn about the zone, zone rules, what hunters can do, what landlords can do. And so um, that was kind of the intent of that. The From a, a hunter, doesn't matter low fence, high fence, you just go blow out there hunting on your ranch. The big thing you can, the couple of things you can do, one is see a sick deer, call us, call Biology, call Game Warden, let us know, hey, I have this deer, it's acting really strange, it, you know, may meet the uh, criteria or symptoms that uh, CBD positive deer may exhibit. And if that's uh-huh. the case, let us know because those are important for us to sample those deer, work with the landowner and hunter to get them sampled because um, that may help us find CBD positive deer out in the landscape in places we don't know there are. And then the second thing is, um, from a hunter perspective, is dispose of your carcass parts properly. If you're killing your deer on your ranch and and I'm not going to take you know the deer off the ranch, then I can debone it, um, clean everything right there and keep it, you know, if I'm hunting on the place. But if I'm, you know, hunting in Knox County or wherever you're at and you're driving back to Collin County with the whole carcass, that's fine. But either take it to a locker plant and they're going to throw it away in a you know, most of them go to dumpsters that go to landfill, or if you process it at your house, throw the bones in the dumpster, throw it in your trash can that goes to the trash service, that goes to landfill, um, or bury it somewhere, you know, that's an option, or, but what we don't want you to do is take the spine and the head, if you're not getting them out or going to tax this, we don't want you to take those parts, because that's where the most infectious materials are in the brain, the spinal cord, things like that, and pitch that on the back 40. Um, that's not good because that's how it potentially spreads. For example, mm-hmm. um, this past season, I had some guys from Colorado, killed some mule deer, brought them back. They didn't know the rules. Um, they were supposed to have a head waiver with them when they come back in the state and take those deer to a taxidermist. And the waiver says, hey, this comes from a CD positive state. You need to throw the brains away in the dumpster when you're done doing the taxidermy work or cleaning up the skull. Well, these guys didn't do that. One of them stuck the head in the fish tank in the back pasture to let the minnows eat the meat off. The other mm-hmm. one boiled it out in his driveway in the front yard, which is great. And the other guy, we actually got a, got in touch with him before um, he did anything with it. But you can see if you're not careful, and those were all CUV pods and mule deer, then it's out there, you know, inadvertently spread on the landscape. And that's the point we want to avoid. So hunters, again, proper cartridge disposal, and then um, mm-hmm. that's a huge help reporting sick deer. And then lastly, just if you want to get your deer tested, that helps us figure out where the disease is and is not around the landscape. And the more samples we get, the better distribution um, all over the state. That's helpful because it may tell us that hey, this is the disease isn't everywhere at a high prevalence, which is good. We want to keep it like that. Or, well, it's in a lot more places than we knew about. We need to come up with a different strategy or um, how we manage it or, uh, or just uh, figure out how we're going to live with it, you know, at some okay. point. Well, so you were, you presented at the, uh, 
commission meeting last week, and you and I had a phone call last week just to kind of go over some of these things, most of which will affect breeding facilities, um, people that are transferring deer, releasing deer to hunt. Uh, but you and you kind of just hit on it. But the one that would affect the the free range average guy listening to this show right now would be the imposed statewide carcass disposal uh, disposal measures, which you basically just went over. Uh, you know, a processor is going to take care of that for you. A taxidermist should do the same thing. If you shoot a deer in a CWD positive area, um, do you? Now, that was one thing that I wasn't real clear on. Can you still, in that situation, say you're hunting in a CWD county, if you just dispose of the animal on the place, you butcher it up there, do you still need to go have it tested? Yeah, so uh, good question. So uh, I do want to clarify one thing or a couple things, and I'll come mm-hmm. back to what happened. Sure. In the home. So the commission, um, we did present, we were seeking a, uh, adoption of statewide carcass disposal rules. The commission actually tabled that part of the proposal right now because um, we did have, you know, a handful of comments um, not supportive of the statewide rules. You're saying it's a barrier to hunters, and I get it, um, you know, the disposal or how they can do it. And then um, we also had a number of folks, including some organizations, that said, hey, we're supportive of this, but find some ways to allow us to debone the whole carcass you know, the deer at the side of harvest and then take just the meat out and leave the head and stuff there. And so that's a fair question. We need to continue to look into that. I will say that right now, anybody in the state, um, if you want to debone your deer at the, the ranch of harvest, you can do that as long as the ranch maintains a cold storage record book and the hunter, all the deer that are killed on there, if you'll enter the appropriate information, that's you know, species, sex, I forget whatever, hunter name, license number, address, that sort of stuff gets entered in that cold storage log, and then you can debone that carcass. The, at that point, once it's entered in the log uh, and the carcass is deboned, um, tagging requirements and proof of uh, sex requirements cease. Um, now, if you're taking a head to a taxidermist, you know, and you debone the meat, it's fine, but you do need a wildlife resource document with the head at that time. Um, this mm-hmm. tax term is just going to be in possession of that, but there's some options right now, but you have to have that cold storage log. And so, so, so my lease, we don't have a cold storage log. So, so, so I wouldn't be able to debone there. No, but, okay. um, something you ought to talk with land over there. Pretty simple. The log, you can download the form off our, uh, website. And if the landowner's okay, your lease, you know, just say, Hey, I'm going to maintain this at the lease. And then everybody enters it and you could do that. And it allows you to leave those infectious parts there the spine the least that i'm on now i've never seen anybody debone an animal there we typically gut it and then take it to see more to the processor or wherever well, that's in, what they do or i take it to cinnamon creek personally but they can take oh, it wherever yeah. they want and that's what most people do is they're gonna it's just an option for those people that may not be able to bury it, don't have a trash service or if they're not going to take it to um a locker plant, which I think the majority of hunters probably do nowadays, um, but then they could debone that. So back to the zone. If I'm in a CWD zone under the current rules right now, it mandatory testing of all hunter harvested deer that are killed in that zone is required. So it doesn't right. matter whether you debone or not. You got to get a sample taken. Um, and then if you're in the zone right now, 
under the current rules, you can only take quartered parts out or deboned meat and packaged meat, things like that. Uh, out of well, I guess zone. I guess I would in this case then if I was in a CWD positive zone and, and I already knew the answer to the question that you had to get them tested. I don't think I would debone it until after I got the test back. Like, or how long does that take? Because I'm not going to eat the CWD positive animal, and I yeah. I know that that is never is never jumped from a cervid to a human. We don't have yeah. any recorded knowledge that that has ever happened. But still, I don't think I want to eat it, and I don't think I'm in the minority of hunters either. If you knew this animal had a disease, are you going to want to eat that? I'm not. And that's the thing. It's not just CWD. It's any deer that you harvest that's got a disease. It's ill. It's I've seen deer with infections and gourd and just nasty stuff coming out of them. Mm-hmm. Don't eat those deer. If it's sick, don't don't eat it. Don't Or what a, a duck with eat. rice breast. I have shot a, a handful of those in my life. And you open it up and it's like, these parasites living in the duck's breast. Well, you can cook it and they're safe to eat. I'm not going to do that because looking at it grosses me out. Yeah. Just most people are not, it's not a good food safety practice to eat right. animals. And so regardless of seeing anything, you know, wouldn't recommend eating that. So, mm. and to your point, most people are going to wait. If once you submit, once we collect a sample at our check station uh, and get that submitted to the lab, it depends on the time of year, but generally the turnaround is within two weeks. Um, we've had some backlogs in the past that take three or four weeks um, just because you have thousands of samples in the lab within a week or two, and that could be a little bit of a challenge to get that. But they've added capacity at Texas um, Veterinary Medical Diagnostic Lab and College Station, so they're cranking through these tests pretty quick. And so at that point, you either got to hang it in a cooler Right. Um, but you got access to cord it, put it in the freezer, you know, something like that. Well, it, that would suck to be in a state like Wisconsin, where a, a, a good percentage of the population is CWD positive and you shoot a deer and you're like, well, it's, it's you know, 50 50 whether it's going to have CWD. Uh, what do I do? Am I going to go ahead and invest the. Right, maybe they can. Maybe it's so cold up there they can just hang it outside and it doesn't matter. Maybe that's yeah. just a salt and nature's uh, solution to that problem. Yeah, I, I don't know, but uh, yeah, it just and that's what we want to. If it takes two weeks to get the point. test back, is where I was going with that. It's like yeah, it takes a while. So what do you do with your carcass at that point? So that's yeah. huh. well, you know, I I get it. I understand. We we don't want to see a CWD outbreak. Um, you guys are being proactive. I guess where where I come down and it's a fine line is like sometimes I think we make it out as this grim reaper uh, we're gonna we're gonna kill all the deer and I don't want to present that message but at the same time I don't want people to take it lightly you know so there's a fine line that we have to walk there and I've seen it go both ways you know some people are like oh CWD is gonna kill all the animals and then some people are like I live in a state with CWD and it's not you know it sucks but it's not the end of the world hasn't wiped out our deer herd. Um, but we haven't had an outbreak in Texas, so that's positive. Yeah, we, we don't have anything that's just like Wisconsin or parts of Tennessee that, or Arkansas that's got a, a bunch of CWD or Colorado, Wyoming. And, you know, up in Colorado, most every summer, and I talk to those locals there, you know, sporting goods store to visit, but it's CBD is not something that's high on their mind. I mean, and it's around quite a bit uh, areas around the state of Colorado and Wyoming. It's just something they 
they do. I'm sure, I know, they, the biologists and those landowners don't wish it was there, but they continue on. And that's the thing we just, to your point, Cable, it's trying to walk this line, um, being as responsible as we can um, with the disease management to not intentionally spread this disease anywhere. And mm-hmm. quite frankly, if we can um, you know, mitigate the chance to unknowingly spread it, that's, that's helpful. But there's always a balance, you know, whether it's the carcass rules or rules pertaining to live animal movements and deer readers, it, it's just hard to find the, sometimes that balance. And that's where we look for things like the commission meeting and have people provide public comment. We had 4,200 public comments, roughly. Um, so there's a lot of uh, opinions on there, what we do, and our commission doesn't take that lightly. Um, and that's why they adopted some rules but pulled back on some others to to get some more discussion because we don't know everything there is to know about this disease. Mm-hmm. Well, I had uh, this was two months ago probably. I had on um, a group of folks representing the, the deer breeding industry. And, you know, they don't always have the nicest things to say about Texas Parks and Wildlife. And I, I understand um, mm-hmm. where they're coming from, but I understand what you guys are doing, trying to manage, even on a high fence ranch, that's a public resource. Yeah. Um, but they, there were some things they said that didn't make sense to me. Like, for instance, if I'm moving a deer from site A to site B, the animal has to be live tested at site A why can't I not release it onto site B? Like they were saying they have to test it again and that the tests are expensive. And then I know one of the things that was proposed was having ear tags in every released buck that, um, potentially could be harvested, could be yeah. shot. And their point was, well, what hunter, and, and I get it. Like who wants to shoot a deer with an ear tag in it? Yeah, it's a high fence, but aesthetically it does take away from that experience, I believe. And I don't know, I'm looking at the uh, the run sheet here from the commission meeting from last week, and I don't see that on here. So I don't know if that one was, uh, no, it, let's see. It was proposed, it, the visible ID, it, it was not uh-huh. adopted by the commission um, at this time. So I think we need to, to look into that some more. And, um, yeah, I mean, obviously. But their point was these deer are already tattooed. So why do we have to have an external marking also? So the, the big part of it, and again, um, it just depends on your perspective, I guess, because everybody has a different perspective on there. Um, if from a disease management standpoint, if you've got, if I got a tattoo in the ear, I can't see that, right? I mean, it's right. it's covered up. I can't look at a deer with binoculars at 50 yards or 100 yards or 10 yards and pick out that tattoo. But if he's got a tag hanging there, from a disease management purpose, if that deer, if I'm caught up, if I'm a release site, I'm a high fence ranch, I bought some deer, and they, uh, a couple of years later, they end up being exposed to a deer in a positive facility. Okay, so now I'm locked down uh, under a hold order with Texas Animal Health Commission. Herd plan is going to be developed for my property. i got to test a number of deer to get out from the whole plan. I've got these requirements on me. But if I can remove those trace deer, and I get out from the mouse trap, so to speak. I get out from other hold order. Well, to be able to do that, um, ideally, if you've got a tag in the ear, then you can certainly ID that deer and say, well, that's green number 10. You know, I'm going to remove that deer and then all the other ones there. Um, and then it clears me up, assuming I get a not detected test. On the if other, you have to shoot the other deer that are with it anyway, 
Yeah, well, what he, difference does it make if you know you like, have a CWD positive come out of there? You're going to have to depopulate that 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 pen or that area. No, regardless, that's the to be clear. Um, so we're talking about deer on these release sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I'm talking about the, the tags in disease management. Yes, there could be a positive out there, but what we're talking about a lot of what people are talking about now is trace deer. So they're deer. They're just I have a positive ranch or positive breeder pen right here okay mm-hmm. and i've got deer in here and the positive deer in the facility died um whatever got tested but then i had other deer in that pen right they were associated they've been exposed to that that deer or been in there three or four years we do a trace back for five year period and some of those deer leave that facility they go i send them to your ranch okay you buy those and turn them out well those are considered trace deer they're exposed to that positive facility it doesn't mean they're cd positive deer they're just exposed that potential mm-hmm. so to mitigate risk you want to try to remove those from the landscape and it clears you up assuming they're not detected um it makes it more challenging if you don't have id in there but you know the some folks um, um argue that if you don't have all those trace deer are not available to you um then and you only remove five of them well it really doesn't change anything whether they had an id in the ear or not um we you know the department argue it's important to remove as many trace deer as you can but other folks will say well it doesn't clear me up from the herd plan because i didn't find all those trace animals so there's two sides to that story but obviously tags are important from that perspective and there's some the tagging requirements are in statute you know, which is a legislative issue and what the department's um thought was is or the interpretation or whatever the way we view the rules we're just reproducing what's in the statute i understand i I do think some of it's archaic though when you when you're talking about um you just mentioned the the incubation period being from 18 to as much as uh, what was it 36 months something like that on cwd but then you'll have trace deer or, or bread does that are cwd negative um but they were taken from a facility four years prior and they're still considered trace deer even though they have a negative test that doesn't make any sense to me i know a lot of deer breeders are pissed about those types of rules uh specifically we don't have time to really go into all of that in any more detail but up next i want to talk about another uh thing that was on the docket for discussion i don't know if it went through or not but the idea of every released buck, for sure, having to have an identification tag in its ear, uh, I think there's certainly issues with that, which we will discuss after the break. That segment of the show brought to you by the All Seasons Feeders Big Chingone Deer Blind. Henry and his buddy Judd, uh, you know, they're sitting there waiting for the sun to come up, and because it's so big and cozy, yeah, they're fast asleep. I look over and both those kids are conked out. That 5 a.m. wake-up call comes early. Uh, but the big chingone has plenty of room to spare. We've had our entire family of five in that thing many times. You can find the big chingone at allseasonsfeeders.com. We'll be right back on FCI's One Star Outdoor Show. But your heart's cold as ice. Mine's paying the price for loving you. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, 
full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Well, I'd never rode a horse, but I'd seen it done. Cowboy movies made it look like fun. This old man whispered a few soft words. It was the best advice I ever heard. And sit tall in the saddle, hold your head up high. Late, great Chris Ledoux Keep bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you. This segment brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Mossberg Firearms, and the 940 Pro Waterfowl, the evolution of Mossberg's semi-auto-loading platform. Uh, this thing is rugged. It's reliable. goes bang when you pull the trigger. Don't have to clean it. That's uh, my favorite. Once they told me you could put 1,000 rounds through it and not have to clean it, I was sold. Boom, give it to me. I want it. Uh, but yes, that is the reality of the 940. I'm in season three, and I haven't done anything as far as I even rub a, run a swab through the barrel. Maybe I shouldn't be bragging about that, but I really wanted to see if it was true. So uh, take it for what it's worth, but I absolutely love this gun, and I think you will too. You can find the 940 Pro Waterfowl and the entire 940 lineup at Mossberg.com. All right, well, let's wrap this thing up. Uh, we'll put a nice little bow on our CWD conversation with Texas Parks and Wildlife uh, Whitetail Deer Program Leader, Alan Kane. Alan, I've, I've shot deer in a high fence. I actually shot a nice one in a high fence this season. Uh, it was, you know, we were filming for Texas Trophy Hunters and uh, their, their show Storytellers. I was happy to do it. Shot a call buck that went almost 170 inches. Who doesn't want to do that, right? But that trophy, while awesome, it doesn't mean the same to me as, you know, one that I poured in blood, sweat, and I don't want to say tears, but just invested in on my deer lease, right? Like if I shot a 140 inch buck on my deer lease, that would definitely mean more to me. Yeah. But if the deer had a tag in its ear, for me personally, I'm just walking through this, doing these mental gymnastics as we're going here. I wouldn't, I don't think I would pull the trigger if the deer had a tag in its ear. So, because it just, to me would look like, eh, I, I can't do that. And I think a lot of hunters feel the same way. So then if I'm going to play the devil's advocate and take the breeder side, which on this issue, maybe I am on their side. Yeah. They're looking at it as, well, this is going to cost me money and affect my ability to make a living because people like Cable who said, mm, I don't think I can pull the trigger on a, a buck with a tag in his ear are no longer going to be spending money to come hunt my deer. And so I do think that is a legitimate concern from, from, that, from their perspective. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly people out there that don't want to hunt deer or take pictures of deer with tags in their ears. But I just, me personally, I've guided on ranches that where deer have been turned out, tagged in the ears, and the, it's the same group of hunters come back year after year, and they would get yeah. used to almost enjoyed having the tags in the ears to say, man, that, that's that buck number 12 or whatever. I saw him when he was two. I saw him last mm. year, and they see the changes in antlers, and they learn about those deer. So it's you know, in Texas, I guess that's one thing we have. We just have a diversity of hunting experiences that people yeah. want. Because if, you know, deer with a tag in its ear, they don't care. You know, antlers or the experience is more important. Um, I I guess I have a question for you, Cable, just um, one way or the other. It, it doesn't really matter to me. But so you don't like, if you're in a, a ranch and um, 
your tag's an issue. I don't want to shoot a buck with tagging gear. And, and I get that. Um, a lot of people don't. Um, does it make a difference knowing that that deer was released or knowing that this is a release site or does it matter? It's just the fact that I just don't want to shoot some of the tag, but would you shoot that same deer knowing it's released and the tag is pulled out, you know, this summer or whenever it got released? Does that doesn't really, that, that doesn't interest me really. I prefer, I, you know, if you introduce genetics uh, in the way that, you know, well, it was just my, my friend Glenn, for example. Yeah. Yeah. He kicked deer out. Um, but their, their goal was for those to breed. And it was like, uh, it wasn't a, it wasn't a real, every year we're turning out deer to shoot. And I get some of the, and oh, I've been on ranches where they do that too. Yeah. Um, and I generally would, if I had the opportunity to switch to an axis deer, that's what I would do in those situations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, where you're just introducing, introducing genetics and you're not really selling hunts probably still would be wouldn't bother me. And I've shot, and like I said, I've shot deer that have been released and I've shot deer that they've introduced, uh, South Texas genetics and, um, in hopes of just improving the quality of the, of the deer herd from an antler's so, perspective. So the long, uh, answer to your short question is it's not really my cup of tea, but at the same time, I, I, uh, I understand that they're trying to make a living and I don't know, it, I don't know what the answer is, but, uh, well, I guess the question I have is, it's still a hunting experience. Yeah, it's still a hunting. Well, a hunt is what you make out of it. Uh, yeah. The biggest deer I've ever shot was on a high fence ranch, and I'm I'm sure that deer had to have been kicked out. Probably, I think he was kicked out probably two or three years prior. Yeah. And so he wasn't. You know, I think that's also. I think there's a misconception that these deer are not afraid of people. This de- this buck. He'd been trying to kill it, and this deer became very aware of the sound of uh, of the buggy. And so he was trying to kill it all season, and I ended up going the last weekend of the season. He's like, I want you to try to kill this deer. Okay, what's the deal with him? As well, he's the biggest deer on the ranch, but uh, he's I think he's conditioned to the buggy because I go to this feeder, and he goes to the other side of the ranch and goes to the other feeder. Uh, and so we just parked the buggy at the one feeder, and we walked all the way to the other one. It wasn't a small property. Um, and sure enough, there, he showed up. We tricked him. Yeah. I don't, but, uh, but here's the other thing. I want to be very careful because there are guys who work their ass off all year. They own their own business. They've got kids. They've got family. Their kids all are in sports, whatever. And they have one weekend a year to go hunting. To them, that, that experience is their hunt. And it isn't, it isn't what I experienced last week getting skunked on my, you know, on my low fence lease, but I don't, I would rather them be hunting than not hunting. I'd rather them be buying a hunting license, supporting Texas parks and wildlife financially, buying ammunition, supporting Pittman Robertson financially with guns and everything else. Um, so I don't know. I'm just, I'm not willing to knock that experience if that's the only experience that they have, or if that's their preferred experience. Some people are lazy. I'm not going to lie. I don't, doesn't bother me. Um, it is um, cable, and that's the thing. Everybody has a different experience, and I've seen people just, you know, kill a deer on some of these ranches. Might not be a released deer; it's just deer that had enhanced genetics over time, and they're uh-huh. just ex- the experience for them was being happy. Um, I yeah. mean, they, they were there; they were in the moment. They killed this big buck, or whatever it is, you know, whatever size, and they were just happy 
with that experience. And then I see kids, you know, on places they kill 160 inch deer, which is really big, you know, um, and for any kid or anybody nowadays to, to harvest a buck that big. But if it hooks them, it gets them to hunting, they're going to have to make their choices later on life where their moral standards are on hunting. Um, you know, we, as long as you not turn them out of the trailer, which is illegal, you know, yeah. and shoot them like that. But, you know, we have rules pertaining to when you can uh, release buck to a full antlers. You have to, you know, no earlier than, uh, or no later than 10 days before an open season can you release a buck with hard, hard horns. Uh, after that, antlers have to be cut. So, but the point being is that everybody has a different perspective on what, what a hunt is but to your point as long as we got people hunting buying licenses enjoying outdoors and even landowners um they're managing um their property those ranches are going to be very invested in the habitat uh, because it's they're making they're making revenue off of keeping the deer healthy and uh not overgrazing and all these things and i would say they're probably going to keep a better a better whitetail friendly habitat than the low fence ranch where there's cows everywhere. Um, yeah, it just, so they it, are good stewards of the, of the land. There's no doubt about that. There's, and again, it doesn't matter. There's all kinds of land stewards. Some are really good high fence, low fence, high fence with breeder release sites. It doesn't matter. I've been on all kinds of places mm-hmm. where people that release deer, that's part of their operation. They care about, bull snakes and Texas tortoises and badgers and songbirds. That's just as important to them as the deer. Right. Deer help pay the bills. Um, if they help continue to enhance habitats, that's good. On the other side, I've seen people that just dump deer out, you know, every year and don't care about habitat. And obviously that's not good for any critter, you know, but right. they're just kind of turning deer out and removing them. But the point being is there's value in, encouraging people hunt and supporting landowners that are willing to manage not only the deer, um, but all the other wild critters in the habitat out there. It concerns me the amount of people moving in the state, the habitat loss, the fragmentation that we have. I mean, you look at that stuff up there in North Texas in Collin, Rockwall, Grace, and the Dallas County, there's those archery-only counties. That's just being developed right and left. Oh, up yeah. There. There's not much left. And uh, the the deer lease that I'm on, and, and to go about what what kind of piggyback on what you're saying is, um, deer lease I'm currently on is I think over four thousand acres out there. The grandmother is that that is the matriarch of the family and owns the ranch. She's in her nineties, and there's no secret that when she passes, that thing is probably going to be broken up and sold off. Yeah. And that's the way it goes. And it might be Californians that buy it. I don't know, but you know, that's, uh, he seems like it's inevitable and that's what happens with a lot of these places. And I don't know if that's, uh, it's a, it's, I think it's a sad thing really, but. Yes. I mean, that's part of what Texas is, is people think of wide open spaces and in the vistas and the views and the wildlife out there. And that's, disappearing i mean it just we're going from ranches to many ranchettes yeah that's good for who owns the the ranchette i guess but it doesn't it it doesn't it doesn't really embody that spirit of texas is is the wild west and like you said these open places and spaces and beautiful views and 
I guess the view's still there, but if you're looking at a fence, you know, a hundred yards from it, it kind of takes away from it. And everything's high fenced. Yeah, if, even if it isn't high fence, it's just knowing that I got a na- neighbor every twenty acres. I was talking mm-hmm. to some hunters um, this weekend from North Carolina, um, and they were talking about how Texas we're, we have these flexibilities to allow for some intensive deer, deer management, whether it's uh, you know high fences and ability to protein feed or DMP permits or releasing deer or just whatever we do, managed road age structure. The, over there in North Carolina, they said, you know, a hundred acre tract of land is a big piece of property. And while mm-hmm. they have a lot of deer, they can't get over any deer over two and a half years of age. They were, you know, they wish they had some of these opportunities. And so that concerns me that, you know, there's that level of development over there and that's coming. You see it down that I-35 corridor um, creeping into the eastern edge of the hill country there between Austin and Houston. Those are developed mm. areas, and it's just going to continue. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say, you know, I'm not a landowner. I own my my house, and that's the only piece of land I own. And so I was about to say, so it doesn't really affect me. But at the end of the day, it greatly affects me because I spend thousands of dollars on deer leases every year, and I don't want a 100-acre deer lease. I want a 4,000-acre deer lease. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I say I don't want a hundred acres. If it was a good one, I'd take it at least 200 acres in Oklahoma, but, uh, yes. I would, I would rather have a bigger property. And I think is what it is, is when those ranches get broken up and sold off and divided and everything makes it harder to find a hunting lease for sure. Those yeah. people that are buying 50 acres, a hundred acres, they're not doing that to lease it to me. They're doing that as their own place. And you know, that's great for them, right? Like more power to you. If you can afford that, then by all means, this is, that is your right to do that. And that's the way that it's trending. But yeah, it does make it harder for the average deer hunter to find a good lease for sure. That, and it makes it harder for, you know, the state is always having to monitor those deer populations because the more fragmentation, uh, the potential for more hunters on smaller tracts of land. So now I'm having potential for more uh, harvest intensity on some areas, which we hadn't seen it. Um, in fact, uh, you know, we're talking about expanding doe days, bringing a proposal in January, um, kind of in 43 counties, east to I-35 and north of Austin, um, like Bell, Falls County. I'm getting complaints from farmers over there um, about crop depredation issues, hmm. in part because they're seeing a lot of those counties getting developed, you know, subdivisions, small ranchettes, and there are fewer people are hunting on those properties. And so those deer are getting pushed out of the habitat. Or but Californians that move in aren't hunting. They're not shooting the deer. Yeah. Wow, so, that's crazy. No. So <laughs> there's, there's always a double-edged sword with all this stuff. Yeah. But I just, at the end of the day, if I can get people to deer as a way to help people keep their ranches, their family farm ranch, maintain the acreage, that's great. Um, if it's something that incentivizes you to manage your property, even if it's a hundred acres or even if it's 10 acres, mm-hmm. you know, I've got 10 acres here in Pleasanton. I don't <clears throat> particularly have many deer. We have them around. I have a feed out here. I got turkeys and deer that come up, but we don't hunt them much, but I still manage my habitat. Um, to we don't it. hunt them much until a 150 shows up. I would, if he was showed up, <laughs> I'll show up at night, you know, or yeah. early, early in the morning. I might catch a glimpse every now and then, but, just for me knowing I'm doing part of that and being part of a good land steward in one of these days, I'll catch one of those bucks coming across and you know, hopefully get a shot at him. But that's, I just tell people, if, you know, we all, 
this thing's fragmented. We're going to have to work together collectively as landowners and hunters. And it may mean that, you know, we're going to pass up these young deer and let them get to at least three or four or some middle What age. is the average age of the, and you've, you've told me this over the years, is it still two and a half, the average age of the deer shot in Texas? Free range? No, it's going to be three or four. I don't remember exactly. You know, we've got antler restrictions in 117 uh-huh. counties. And so prior to them, we were seeing 60 to 80 percent of the buck harvest being one and two year old bucks. That's actually swapped now to um, anywhere between 55 and 70 percent of the buck harvest in those counties is bucks three and a half or older. And then everywhere else, that's generally three and a half uh, years of age or older. So it's somewhere between three and four years of age on average for a buck. Okay. Well, that's encouraging because that's definitely shifted over the years because you and yeah. I have been visiting for a long time. Yeah. And I'll just put it like this. There's 10, 12 guys, I think, guns on my on my lease. And we all share pictures and we're, we're, not, we're not competing against each other. I mean, sure, yeah. my buddy Matt has this that, that drop tine on his camera. And then the other guy closest to me, Cody, he has the drop tine on camera. And we're all like sharing pictures. Uh, if any of the three of us get it, that's great. Yeah. Would I like for it to be me? Sure. But if it's one of them, you know, more power to them, but nobody on the lease is purposely trying to shoot a deer that's under four and a half years old. Uh, so we're all cognizant of that. And we're all, you know, we're all looking at like, well, that's, we're sharing pictures around, you know, opening weekend. Hey, this, does this buck look mature to you? Yeah. Yeah. I think he's probably five and a half or, yeah, maybe he needs another year. And uh, as long as that mentality is going on at deer leases across the state, I think, I think that's a a great change in uh, and how we manage whitetail deer across the state and the mentality. That's kind of the same thing that we've seen. And this goes, this is this states back to before really whitetail management, but the same thing we've done with trophy bass fishing yeah. is uh, you know let, let, let them let the big ones go. There's no reason to kill those. A 10 pound yep. bass might taste good, but you know what? So does, so do five, two pound bass. Yep. And that's the thing. If, you know, it's always cool to harvest a buck, you know, it's got mm. ice antlers, the bone on its head. There's just something about that. It's probably some primal instinct in us, but at the end of the day, I can't eat those antlers. Yeah. So if I kill the two and a half or three and a half, or, you know, if I can let him go another year and I work with my buddies, great, but I, kill a doe in most places um then fantastic you know you've got some venison for the freezer um let deer go and you'll probably be happy later on as you let that that deer age oh well i i I agree with you but i'd also say this these days if you brought a two and a half year old deer back to your deer camp you're probably going to be ridiculed (laughs) yeah peer pressure Right, they're going to be like, "Whoa, what did you? Oh no, what did you do that, Jimmy? That was, that was a nice young eight point. And what were you? Were you blind, or did you get buck fever? What happened? Yeah, yeah. But back in the day, in some states, uh, my friend Rob, who owns a high fence ranch um, out around Glen's, Glen Rose, sometimes listens to the show, and uh, he goes back to Pennsylvania where he's from every fall, and it's not the same mentality there. It's starting to shift but not to where we are in texas and it's like he says around the water cooler you know guys like did you get a buck i got a buck what you're like let me see a picture it's like a four corn it's like a four pointer and everyone's yeah. but but there it only matters because it's a buck right yeah but that's because everybody shoots anything that has antlers and so if you get a buck that's pretty rare <laughs> yeah. I just, yeah and that's the thing i just um 
any listeners from Pennsylvania, feel free to chime in and tell us that we're jerk offs in Texas. But uh, hey, that's from a Pennsylvanian. You know, it's not not Cable's story. Yeah, it's just it's amazing the different cultures around the nation. Um, you know, when you think about what hunting, how hunting is different in Pennsylvania or some of the southeast states or out west versus Texas or you know wherever. So mm-hmm. it's just we're we're a unique state um, in the context of intensive deer management opportunities. We've afforded people a lot of opportunities, um, and what yeah. that comes a lot of responsibilities. You know. Well, Texas does have, uh, I believe, the longest rifle season, the longest deer season. Uh, we do have wonderful opportunity here. And all, and although I don't always agree with everything you do, and, you know, it's like, uh, yeah. it's like I would say my relationship with the politicians I vote for. Well, yeah, I don't like everything they do, but I agree with them the majority of the time. Um, and so, well, you know, I appreciate what you guys are doing. And um, it's not a it's not a job that I'm envious trying to, to make sure that CWD doesn't become a big thing because it makes a lot of people upset in the process. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a goal and, uh, having a, a, a CWD, a significant one, nobody wants that. So I'm not jealous of the position that you're in. (laughs) I'll trade with you. Yeah. (laughs) It's It's a challenge trying to find the best, solution moving forward um, yeah. you know, but we just keep pushing keep pushing forward and we'll try to do what's best for everybody and i think the commission provided us some clear direction on that as well so um where are the uh so as far as the the meeting itself is the are the results of that discussion posted online somewhere Actually, or are we still in the public comment period now the proposal is done comments are closed um okay. the commission adopted what they were going to adopt um so it's finalized. So was that posted with the finalized decision? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if they'll have the exact parts of the proposal for, uh, published yet, but if you go to um, our webpage, click on the commission link. It's down towards the bottom there. You'll see mm-hmm. at the very bottom, there's a bunch of little links and one says commission. Click on that, go to the meeting, November meeting for this, um, this year. And there'll be a YouTube link, and you can watch uh, for Thursday. You go to Thursday, and you'll see a YouTube link. Watch that. And you scroll towards the end, um, and you'll see the um, what the commission uh, adopted. Um, okay, right on. Uh, oh, I did have one other question for you. Uh-huh. And this is in the same vein, but a different species. And I've, I just heard grumblings about axis deer possibly, possibly being up next for some type of CWD restrictions. Don't know if that's true or not, but figured I'd ask you about that. No, there's no, no rules or anything associated with uh, CWD and axis deer. There's some research out of Texas Tech University. They were looking at axis deer, um, their genotype, I guess, um, related to the, um, the prion or the, code on where the the cbd you know manifest and Uh it's very similar the genetics are very similar to elk and so um those researchers essentially said look this is very similar and so there's a high probability um based on their research that suggests that axis deer might be susceptible we don't know we test we do collect samples off of axis deer not a lot but we do collect some every year and we've not found a positive 
Um, That's good. You know, we're working on a research project. We're going to be starting one to determine if axes deer are susceptible to CBD um, through natural transmission routes. Um, and so that's hopefully we'll get kicked off here before too long, but no rules associated with that and no, nothing for sure whether axes are susceptible at this point. Uh, we don't know that they are. I really love access deer. In fact, across from our uh, low fence place, there's a high fence ranch, a big one. And I was driving by yesterday and there was a herd oh. of axis deer along the highway. And I was like, Hmm, wouldn't be terrible. It'd be terrible for them. Wouldn't be so bad for me. If you know what some of those, uh, stop gaps from floods, if we had a big rain, yeah. and I was like, that's a very selfish thing to think. But if it did happen, you know, like, <laughs> Hey, I mean, they're free ranging across so much of the state now. Uh, and as much as whitetail deer really represent Texas, it's weird how it seems like access deer is a very Texas, you know, symbolic of Texas. These, I mean, entire companies put them on their shirts now. It's, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, especially the hill country, get towards mm-hmm. uh, Junction, uh, Rock Springs area. There's some areas with just exceptional numbers of access deer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Probably too many, truth be told. But I would um, say you're probably right, based off of the number of headless axis bucks that I've seen on the on the highway there coming. Uh, you know where the airport is in Rock Springs? Yeah, off that highway. Um, that's where my friend had a had a ranch there. And oh, no. Every time I would go there, <laughs> there were axis deer with their heads cut off right on the side of the road, Those, which is t- illegal. Humans. Y'all don't do that. Yeah, don't don't cut them off the side of the road. But, uh, yeah. Well, and I appreciate it, my friend. Yep. Good to hope a big one shows up on the 10 acres there. (laughs) Me too. All right. Have a great season. Thanks again. Take care, David. So there he goes. Texas Parks and Wildlife's white-tailed deer program leader, Alan Kane. Always a pleasure uh, touching base with Alan. The one thing I wanted to mention I totally forgot was the, the reality that there's more positives in high fences because of the rate of testing. Like if you were testing... Uh, as, as frequently on the open range, you would have a lot more positives. We just flat out don't do that though. Uh, so that is something that the, uh, the two gentlemen, the, the deer breeders that were on back in September wanted to note was, yeah, there, of course there's more positives because there's exponentially more tests. Um, so keep that in mind. Uh, but you know, whether you agree with Alan or not, uh, I think it's, important to understand where Texas Parks and Wildlife is coming from on CWD. Uh, that segment of the presentation was brought to you by Numa Outdoors and the Alpha Vertex Pants and Jacket. This is what I wear when, you know, temperatures are below 50, but, you know, not in the, you know, not below freezing. So that window where, yeah, it's chilly, but inside you're not going to freeze your butt off. It's, it's lightly insulated. It's designed for bow hunters, so super quiet. It's comfy. Uh, it's the, there's pant jacket and even a vest and it comes in that Kaza camo that NUMA is known for. And you can find the alpha vertex system as well as NUMA's entire lineup at NUMAoutdoors.com. Save 20% with that promo code Lone Star 20 when you check out. That's off of all of NUMA's products. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Gotta go, gotta get out of here. Thanks to Alan Kane. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. The DNR predicted deer season was doomed. 
Well, me and my buddies, we got to thinking, sitting around one night drinking, how we gonna fill up our deer tag?